Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ellen Fisher. She is a biological anthropologist and a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, Indiana University. She has written six books on a lot of topics like evolution, biology, and psychology of human sexuality, monogamy, adultery and divorce, gender differences in the brain, the neural chemistry of romantic love and attachment, human biologically based personality styles, hooking up, friends with benefits, living together, and other current trends like, for example, slow love, which we're going to talk about today. And she's the author of books like Why We Love, The Nature and Chemistry of Romantic Love, Why Him, Why Her, How to Find and Keep Lasting Love, and Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. So, Dr. Fisher, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. I'm delighted. I'm delighted to talk to you. Oh, great. So let me first ask you, because today we're going to focus our conversation basically on love, right? That is perhaps the biggest topic of your research. So, I mean, when we talk about love and particularly from an anthropological slash biological perspective, I guess that first we have to try to understand where it comes from evolutionarily speaking. And so I guess that we could say that love is a very important tool in several species, the sexually reproducing ones, and particularly the ones where we get parental investment, particularly on the part of males and also of females, of course. So could you please perhaps start by telling us a little bit about that? Well, first of all, I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, that other animals can feel it too. Almost nobody ever talks to me about that. And it's a basic brain system at the very base of the brain that we share with all of the mammals and birds. So there's every reason to think that other animals feel that instant attraction uh, to conspecifics or to uh, other members of their species who they find attractive. So, But I just want to start out by saying that, you know, sort of a little bit about what love is. You know, I think that we've evolved three, I don't think, I think I've been able to prove that we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems from mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive. One, the second one is feelings of intense romantic love. And the third is feelings of deep attachment. And I think what you're actually talking about is romantic love rather than the sex drive or feelings of attachment. We know the basic um, chemicals involved with all three of these brain systems, and we know some of the basic pathways in the brain. But the one I think you're talking about is romantic love. And yes, um, I and my colleagues have now put over 100 people into a brain scanner who were madly in love. Uh, the first group were people who had just been, were just fallen happily in love. The second was a group of people who had just been rejected in love. And a third group was people who were in love long-term. These were happily married people in their 50s and 60s who were not loving each other as well as being in love. They were also in love with each other. So anyway, what we found in the brain was activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area or the VTA. And this is a brain region that actually makes dopamine, a natural stimulant, and then sends that um, 
uh, neurochemical to many brain regions to give you the feelings of elation, euphoria, giddiness, possessiveness, craving, obsessive thinking about the person, high motivation to win that person, um, etc. There's many basic characteristics of romantic love. So what's interesting about this brain system that we discovered is it's way below the cortex where you do your thinking. Um, I had thought that, in, and it's way below um, brain regions in the middle of the head that orchestrate the emotions. It's in a brain region at the base of the brain linked with drive, with craving, with obsession, with focus, and with motivation. And in fact, the basic factory, the VTA, or ventral tegmental area, that pumps out the dopamine lies fairly near, very close to um, other factories that orchestrate thirst and hunger. So thirst and hunger keep you alive today, and romantic love enables you to begin to start a pair bond, feel attachment, and then pass your DNA into tomorrow. So my brain scanning partner and I, Lucy Brown, and I now call this a survival mechanism. It's an ancient evolutionary brain pathways that drives us to form a pair bond and rear our children as a team. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess that perhaps love or romantic love in this case is what's behind, uh, biologically speaking, pair bonding in species where it is really important for, the, uh, uh, for them to have parental investment on the part of both females and sometimes even a bit more or less on the part of males. But Talking about I just want to say that males really do form pair bonds just as much as females. It's quite remarkable how, how people think that uh, men don't invest in love. Men fall in love faster than women do. They fall in love more often than women do. Uh, when a man... <clears throat> meets a woman that he really likes. Uh, he wants to introduce her to friends and family sooner. Men want to move in sooner uh, together. Um, <clears throat> men have more intimate conversations with their wives or girlfriends than women do with their husbands or boyfriends because women have their very intimate conversations with other women, other girlfriends. And men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship ends. So bottom line is men are just as invested as women are. They just do it differently. I mean, for millions of years, women really did and still do spend much more time with children under the age of four. But for millions of years, men were out doing very dangerous things, trying to hit that buffalo in the head with a rock, trying to come home with, you know, with some dinner to feed that family. So I think seem to be a, uh, the only one in America who really wants to let the world know that men are just as well built for romantic love and deep feelings of attachment as women are. Yes, and, but that's very interesting because on the other hand, we also have research that tells us that, for example, men tend to be more socio-sexual, that is, they, it's easier for men to have, for example, sex with women that they are not really romantically or emotionally attached to, and looking back at an evolutionary perspective, it is even an optimal mating strategy for men to try to impregnate as many women as <clears throat> men, uh, at least when comparing to women, because, I mean, it wouldn't make much, much sense for women to adopt that strategy. And so I guess that some people would think that perhaps romantic love doesn't work exactly the same way in men as in women. 
Well, it's so interesting because uh, I know who you're referring to, evolutionary psychologists. And one of the things I like to ask those evolutionary psychologists is, who do they think all these men are actually sleeping with? <laughs> Either there's a few women who sleep with an awful lot of men and other women who are quite uh, careful, or uh, men are bragging and women are lying. And in fact, among Americans under the age of 40, women are just as adulterous as men. And uh, in one interesting study out of England several years ago, ended up establishing that men were bragging and, and that women were lying. Uh, uh, that, uh, that in fact, uh, women are just as sexual as men. We do know, now know that in, among college people, uh, women have more sex than men do because it's very easy for a college girl, even if she's not very attractive, uh, uh, to, um, att get sex. Whereas, uh, you know, a man has to prove himself. I mean, it's really not until men have begun to uh, have good jobs and drive fancy cars and lie, you know, live in big houses and et cetera, that, um, they can really get a lot of women to uh, sleep with them. So I think if you ac actually looked at, uh, you know, the sexual, uh, um, strategies of both men and women over the life course, uh, you would begin to realize, I think, as a lot of these people don't realize, uh, that women are actually as sexual as men. You know, we are coming out of 10,000 years of an agrarian tradition, right to now, right today we are. We are dropping belief systems that we had for over a thousand years and for a thousand, uh, for over 10,000 years. And during that period of time, um, uh, you know, men had the important role in the family. I mean, they could move the rocks, fell the trees, plow the land, and bring the produce off to local markets. A woman's place was in the home. And along with that, we see the rise of a lot of beliefs about what a man is and what a woman is. Among them, uh, a woman's place is in a home, virginity of the woman, until marriage, uh, till death do us part, the man is the head of the household, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm an anthropologist, unlike the psychologist I think you're referring to. And um, when you take a look at hunting and gathering societies around the world, the way they used to be, um, over 75% of them believe that women are just as sexual as men. Um, in hunting and gathering societies, a woman would commute to work to gather their fruits and vegetables. They would come home with 60 to 80% of the evening meal. The double income family was the rule and women were regarded as just as sexual and socially and economically powerful as men. So what we're really seeing today is we are shedding the beliefs of our agrarian background and moving forward to the kinds of creatures that we are probably a million years ago. Women's sexuality is rising, their economic power is rising, their social power is rising. And I think a couple generations from now, uh, most scientists will come to hopefully <laughs> what I think I already see, which is that women are just as sexual as men are. They may do it for different reasons. Um, you know, from a Darwinian perspective, a man who sleeps around uh, can have more children. A woman can't always have more children when she sleeps around, but she can get a lot more um, uh, uh, goods and services for the children that she's already got. I mean, women tend to sleep around with men who give them gifts. Uh, who And for millions of years, if a woman, um, you know, a husband's out of town hunting and, and she sleeps with somebody else or she goes off gathering for two weeks and sleeps with other people, she might not get another child, but she might get... Um, 
an insurance policy. Somebody will step in if her husband dies, uh, more food and protection from extra men. So women for millions of years did get extra payoffs from sleeping around. And there's every reason to think when we look into the brain that the brain circuitry for romantic love is exactly the same for men as it is for women. And a great deal of social psychology data that men fall in love faster and more often. <laughs> yeah, you refer to a very interesting thing there. That is the fact that I think we could put it this way, I guess, that many women have a sort of uh, backup boyfriends, right? <laughs> yes, yes. All of them. All of them. <laughs> Both of them. I mean, well, women, men will have backup girlfriends and women will have backup boyfriends. I mean, you know, we're playing the, the most important game in town. I mean, you know, as Darwin said, if you have four children and I have no children, you live on and I die out. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there is kin selection. We are, you know, we count on our relatives to have babies too. They share our DNA. But the bottom line is um, the brain is built to try and have babies or protect the babies you already got to move on to adulthood. And, uh, and when I look in the brain, we see no difference between the, the, the pathways for romance in men and in women. Mm -hmm. So let me just take a just take a step back here because I guess that when we're talking about love, we're focusing here on romantic love. But more generally, isn't it also the case that perhaps romantic love sort of piggybacked on a more ancient system that was the one that established? Uh, love relationships between, for example, uh, mothers and their children that, that uses uh, the oxytocin system, for example. And people also tend to refer to love or at least to uh, a sort of love when it comes to friendships and to other social relationships. So, I mean, isn't it the case that love as an emotion is sort of multidimensional and perhaps when we're referring to romantic love specifically that, as I said, it piggybacks some, somehow on other mechanisms that probably are a little bit more ancient than it? Um, very wonderful question. Um, there's no question about it. The, the, these are multi-purpose systems. Um, just like the fear system. You can be, you know, scared your boyfriend will leave you or you can be scared of being hit by a taxi cab or you can be scared of being eaten by a lion. So these are multi-purpose systems. And I, you know... For example, when a mother um, has a new baby, uh, she can fall in love with that baby and show many of the characteristics of romantic love, the obsessive thinking, the intense motivation, uh, the ecstasy, uh, the despair if things are going poorly, uh, the possessiveness, um, the craving to, you know, to be with the child, etc. has many of the characteristics of romantic love. But there is a characteristic of romantic love that mothers don't have, uh, new mothers don't have, which is they don't want to have sex with the child. <laughs> and when you've fallen madly in love with somebody, uh, you have a great many characteristics, but you also want to have sex with the child. So bottom line is the brain is a mix and match thing. We have all kinds of brain systems that can be used um, 
commandeered in in many different ways. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, people can almost be in love with an idea or be in love with their motorcycle or be in love with God, um, etc. But most of those things don't have all of the traits of romantic love between a man and a woman. So there's all kinds of combinations, all kinds of combinations of attachment. Now, for example, you can feel deeply attached to your family. You can be deeply attached to your home. You can be deeply attached to people at work. I mean, it's a, it's a, it, it's a brain system that can be employed under many different circumstances. But true romantic love with all of its various traits, and I would not say it's an emotion. I'd say it's basically a drive, basic drive. Um, it's focused on only one person at a time. You know, I read world poetry and because I think it's a great artifact. I mean, other anthropologists, you know, look at arrowheads or, or teeth or skulls or, or potsherds, etc. I read poetry because it's a great um, uh, artifact of the human emotions and around the world uh people say this literally describe romantic love the same way and there's an indian poet i can't remember his name i think it's kabir but i'm not sure in which he says the lane of for love is narrow there's room for only one now this is in india and uh, you see the same kinds same things in the arab world in in the Western world, in China, Japan, uh, among hunters and gatherers, etc. I mean, around the world, people sing for love, they dance for love. We have poems, songs, plays, novels, ballets, operas, um, uh, theater, of course, uh, holidays, gift cards. I mean, we are saturated in these, in these uh, uh, artifacts of this basic human drive. Right. So could you tell us about perhaps what, what are the main symptoms and uh, behaviors that people exhibit when they fall in love with someone? And yeah. this happens cross-culturally, right? Yeah. First thing that happens is uh, the person takes on what I call special meaning. Everything about them becomes special. The car they drive is different from every other car in that parking lot. The, their book bag at school is different from every book bag, the house they live, the street they live on, the, the music that they like, everything becomes special. And then you feel intense elation when things are going well, mood swings into terrible despair when things are going uh, poorly, heightened energy, you can walk all night and talk till dawn, um, all kinds of physiological feelings, a, a dry mouth, um, you know, um, a pounding heart, butterflies in the stomach, uh, weak knees, uh, incredible possessiveness. You know, if you don't really, uh, if you're not really in love with somebody, you can have sex with somebody and really don't care if they have sex with somebody else. But when you're in love, you become possessive. Uh, there's something called separation anxiety. You want to be with the person. You wonder where they are um, if you're not with them. But the three main characteristics are, you're, and you want to have sex with them too, but even more than the sex, what you want to do is uh, have emotional union. Sure, you want to have sex with them, but what you really want them to do is to call, to write, uh, to ask you out, to, to tell you that they love you. Also, unbelievable craving for the person. You are obsessed with them. You wake up thinking about them. You go to bed thinking about them. You think about them a great deal. There's somebody camping in your head. And last but not least, you're highly motivated to win them. 
What's, what people will do when they are in love is really quite remarkable. And very last, um, it is uh, involuntary. As the, as the French writer Stendhal once said, he said, love is like a fever. It comes and goes quite independently of the will. And it does. It's hard to get that person out of your head once, they, once, you get it, once it gets in it. I mean, it's not like pushing away chocolate to say I'm on a diet. It's not like saying, okay, I'm not going to drink anymore. It's very difficult. It's very involuntary. But, you know, in one of our um, a brain scanning experiments that we did of people who have been rejected in love, we did prove that time heals. There's a, a brain region linked with attachment called the ventral pallidum. Uh, and that brain region is very active when you feel attached to somebody. And what we think is going on is it's pumping out oxytocin, a different brain chemical linked with feelings of attachment. And that brain region becomes less and less and less active the farther you get from that initial uh, moment of separation. So time can, can heal. Right. So, I mean, we go through all of these symptoms that are universal when we fall in love, but how do, ch how do things change over time if we are able to really start a relationship with that person? Uh, I mean, because I guess that over time, uh, things at least calm down a little bit and yeah. uh, the emotion fades away a little bit over time. So, uh, how does it develop? In the long well, it's very interesting because, you know, these three brain systems, sex drive, romantic love, and feelings of attachment, a lot of people assume that first you have sex, then you fall in love, then you feel attachment. That's not true. This is, these are different brain systems. You can be, feel a, a very attached to somebody in college and, or somebody at work or somebody in your social circle. You like them very well. And then four years later, um, you know, they break up with their partner, your partner dies, or you break up, and all of a sudden, boom, you can feel deep feelings of, of romantic love for them instead, and then feel the sex drive. Or you can fall madly in love with somebody first, and then that triggers the sex drive, and then you can move into feelings of deep attachment. But bottom line is that very early stage of, of romantic love will begin to decline because it's not adaptive. I mean, you don't want to be spending your life waiting by the telephone for 30 years for him to call, you know, you got to raise babies and, and, and get to work, et cetera, et cetera. So that early, early intense infatuation or romantic love can begin to decline. And, um, and then you can move into a sense of deep attachment uh, to your partner, a continued high sex drive for your partner and sort of intermittent feelings of attachment. You know, we are the first in the world to put people into the brain scanner who were in love long-term, not just loving, but in love. These people, I mentioned it before, they were all in their 50s and 60s. Um, they were all married an average of 20 to 21 years. Uh, the vast majority of them had grown children. And they came into the lab saying, I'm still in love with her. I'm still in love with him. And so we put them in this machine. You know, nobody believes you can remain in love long-term. And in fact, we found same activity in this tiny little factory, the ventral tegmental area, pumping out the dopamine, giving you that, that elation. But there was some differences. Uh, people who had just fallen happily in love had activity in brain regions linked with anxiety. 
whereas that was gone in long-term lovers. Instead, we found activity in brain regions linked with calm and pain suppression. So there's no question about it that that very early stage is designed for a particular purpose, to see that person, do whatever you can to win them, win them, cement the partnership with sex and love and laughter and everything, and then slowly, gradually build the attachment as well. What's interesting is that romantic love can uh, can be instant. Mm -hmm. Just like the fear system, um, uh, you can be instantly terrified of a taxi cab coming after you. Um, you can be instantly in love. When somebody walks in, that person perfectly fits within your love map or your description of what you're looking for, you're ready to fall in love, boom, that brain circuitry can become uh, instantly alive. Attachment takes time. I don't believe anybody has ever walked into a room, seen somebody they don't know, never heard of, and instantly felt attached to them. Now, if that person just jumped into, in front of your car to save your child, you probably might feel an instant attachment, but that's pretty rare. That probably you would feel romantic love instead and deep obligation, but not necessarily attachment. So um, the brain circuitry for romantic love and the sex drive can be triggered instantly, but attachment takes time in the brain. So there's every reason to say that it's more likely that most people feel uh, romantic love first and then attachment. Now, I had a man in my life who, I hung around with for four years. Uh, um, you know, I had a, another boyfriend and he had another girlfriend and I just really liked him. Times completely changed for both of us. We hung around for four years just as friend and one day I fell madly in love with him and I was remained in love with him for 18 years. So it is possible. Yes, and I mean, you referred to at a certain point there to the brain systems and brain areas that go associated with these several stages of romantic love, let's say, but uh, there are also some uh, ingredients in terms of hormones and neurotransmitters that go associated with each stage of romantic love, right? Like, for example, uh, in your work, you refer to uh, testosterone that goes associated with desire, dopamine and norepinephrine that go associated with uh, romantic attraction, and vasopressin and oxytocin that go associated with long-term attachment, right? Good for you, Ricardo. You're a good journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, I, I mean, would you like to say anything about uh, how perhaps uh, something that, uh, that people would like to know perhaps about how these hormones work uh, and perhaps, I, I mean, do, are they present throughout all three stages of romantic love and some of them go up and some of them go down over the stages or how does it really work? Um, I, I don't think anybody really knows because you can't keep a person in a getting back into a brain scanning machine, you know, daily or monthly or, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, every time you're feeling the sex drive, it's going to be involved with testosterone. Every time he suddenly smiles at you or grabs your hand or hugs you and it's, he's very romantic, you're going to feel a bit of a dopamine rush. And when you're deeply attached, you're cuddling together at night, you're sleeping in the other person's arms and you feel total cosmic connection and satisfaction. 
the oxytocin system is working. And these brain systems are going to, just like you said, they're going to alter in all kinds of ways. I mean, you can wake up in the morning and suddenly feel sexy. Well, that's testosterone in both men and women. You know, and then you, you find a little note from him uh, or a little text from him while you're at work and it's just so charming and funny and you get that zip of intense romantic love from him, that's gonna be dopamine. And then, as I say, you're cuddling at night and it's going to be the oxytocin. So the brain is constantly at work. I mean, whatever you're feeling, however you're changing your feelings, you can count on the fact that the brain is, is, is orchestrating those feelings. I mean, you're feeling it and the brain is doing it as you're, as you're feeling it. So, but the, uh, I would certainly say that if you're deeply attached to a person and, and not in love with them for the minute, that uh, you're going to have more oxytocin activity in the brain. I mean, I, I don't, I would, that's only logical. Uh, I've not studied it, and I don't think anybody else has either, but it certainly is logical. And if you're in the middle of having sex with somebody, uh, you're going to have a, you're going to, that, that whole sex system is going to be operating more than the attachment system. And then sex is over, you feel that rush of oxytocin. Uh, as you have an orgasm and boom, you suddenly feel deep sense of cosmic union with the person. So that's the brain works. It's ratios within ratios within ratios. And, you know, I don't know, there's something like, I have somebody, you know, billions of connections between all of these various um, uh, nerve cells, uh, neurons, and, uh, and um, you know, a, a host of whole brain systems. And don't forget, I mean, you could have the fear system involved, the anxiety system involved, the elation system involved. Uh, you know, I mean, when you're looking at somebody, the eyes are doing something the, when you're talking. to So the bottom line is an awful lot of systems going together in all kinds of ratios to create this. It's really magnificent, the brain, when you think about it. And it's magnificent that we are able to fall in love uh, so dramatically with somebody. I mean, people pine for love, they live for love, they kill for love, and they die for love. It's one of the most powerful brain systems we've ever evolved. And to think that it comes from other animals, just like you started by talking about, I mean, uh, they know that in prairie voles, a little like a field mouse, you know, that brain system for romantic love, uh, for a, attraction in prairie voles is almost exactly the same brain system that we've got for romantic love coming from the of uh, the basal ganglia the ventral tegmental area etc the difference is they don't write poetry prairie voles and you know they don't write operas and theater and movies and and songs and stories and we do what's happened to us is on top of that very primitive drive to to attract comes all kinds of more sophisticated emotions and all kinds of very sophisticated uh, cognitive uh, processes and decision-making, et cetera. So we've got a, quite a factory going for us with an awful lot of parts. So, uh, I mean, are there any major sex differences in terms of the hormones that play a role in romantic love and romantic attachment? I mean, uh, you referred to, for example, prairie voles. And I remember that people tend to talk about the role that vasopressin has on uh, males from that species. So, And when we talk about oxytocin, we tend to associate it with 
uh, attachment between mother and child and, and women tend to liberate more oxytocin in their brains when they, they are together with, the, with their children and in, 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 close, uh, in close physical contact, for example. So, I mean, is it the case that, for example, uh, vasopressin plays a bigger role in male brains and oxytocin in female brains, or uh, th does this make sense? <laughs> well, uh, I don't study those brain systems, but I've certainly read a lot about them. Um, and certainly among prairie voles, uh, uh, vasopressin in males uh, stimulates the male to protect the nest and cuddle with the kids <laughs> and, the, and the mother. So, uh, and of course in female mammals, uh, oxytocin uh, at, at birth, uh, the birth of the infant, uh, stimulates uh, uh, the production of the milk and, and all kinds of other physiological uh, maternal uh, um, activities. But, uh, you know, in our lifetime, we've discovered that this oxytocin also uh, plays a role in attachment. And uh, it's interesting that I went, read recently that men who have a new child when they pick up the child and hold it, activity in the testosterone system goes down and probably activity in the oxytocin system goes up. So um, I, 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 they probably play some somewhat different roles. I mean, both men and women have vasopressin. Both men and women have oxytocin all through the animal kingdom. These are basic ancient chemical systems. They're gonna operate in different species in different ways. Now, for example, among zebra, uh, a male doesn't form a pair bond with one female. He tries to gather a group of at least five females and he has a harem. Well, it's not gonna be attachment to just one female. It's gonna be a group attachment, but it'd probably be a lot of the same attachment system being involved, just a different reproductive strategy. But one thing's important, now, for, example, for example, men have a great deal more testosterone uh, than women do. But it's not the level of testosterone, it's the activity of testosterone. So it's not how much testosterone you've got, it's how it operates in the brain. So uh, in the brain, you know, you have receptor sites and you've got the, the nerve cell and it's pumping out uh, um, dopamine or vasopressin or whatever and you've got its receptor that has got to you know go over the synapse and into the receptors and it's going to be the degree of number of receptors what's happening in the synapse between the nerve cell and the next nerve cell how much it's pumping out whether it gets stuck whether it gets absorbed etc etc this very com complex so it's not the levels as much as it is the um activity of these basic brain systems. And I, it's my understanding that men have a good deal more testosterone, but that doesn't necessarily, and certainly you can see it in teenage. I mean, men's voice box go, voice goes down. Uh, they build a great deal more um, muscles in the upper body, et cetera. Uh, and um, it has a lot of activities, whereas estrogen brings on uh, women's sex cycle and uh, breasts, et cetera. Uh, so they do different jobs in different ways. It's, it's complicated. But um, <clears throat> I'll go back to my thing. Uh, I think that women have as high a sex drive, uh, depending on what age you're talking about. Older women can have a higher sex drive than older men uh, because with um, 
menopause, levels of estrogen go down and levels of testosterone go down too, but not as much. And so you see much more testosterone in older women. And you can see it around them. They begin to put weight on around the middle instead of around the hips and breasts. Uh, sometimes they'll get a little more hair on their chest. Your grandmother will tell you like it is. Your girlfriend's not likely to because she's sweet and pleasant and tries to get along. Your grandmother's got more testosterone and more tough-minded. So um, <clears throat> these uh, hormones and neurotransmitters will, will change their activity over the life course. They will change under various uh, circumstances. Um, and they will certainly change with different kinds of people. But, uh, but the bottom line is, uh, I think we're going to come to understand that women are just as sexual as men, that men are just as romantic as women, and that both sexes have a great deal of attachment for one another. Okay, so I guess that another big topic here and another very important thing to explore when it comes to romantic love is the fact that uh, as far as I understand it, of course, it doesn't seem that when we fall in love with another person, I mean, it's not a random nor an, an arbitrary process in the sense that, uh, I mean, we have mate preferences. I guess that we could say that we have general mate preferences for men and women, but there are also other things from our experience, our personal experience, for example, that come into play here, right? Right. Well, you know, um, I call it your love map. <clears throat> and as we grow up, we build a conscious and unconscious list of what we're looking for uh, in a partner. Um, and we carry that around in our head. It's called your love map. And then when the timing is right, uh, you're ready to fall in love. A person comes past you and who has um, most of the characteristics you're looking for. And this brain circuitry, maybe you don't fall instantly madly in love, but you feel that attraction to that person. And you think, oh, if that person flirts or smiles or is single and is ready, that's the kind of person that, that I could go for. So uh, we do carry that love map in our head. That's cultural. Uh, but there's biology to it also. We do also tend to fall in love with somebody from the same uh, socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same general level of education. Certainly your life goals make a difference, whether you want to have babies or not, whether you want to be the king of kings or whether you don't care and just want to sail around the world in a small boat. So your goals, uh, your reproductive interests, your economic uh, interests all play a role. Your childhood always plays a role, a great deal of it. But you can walk into a room and everybody's from your background, a level of intelligence and good looks and education, and you don't fall in love with all of them. So what I began to think to myself is, people will say we have chemistry or we don't have chemistry. What do they mean by that? Maybe we are, have evolved basic biological uh, chemistry that naturally draws us to one person rather than another. And that's why I wrote that book, Why Him, Why Her? Uh, in it, I, what I did is I looked into the <coughs> excuse me, academic literature and I found that there's a lot of brain systems, but most of them keep the eyes blinking or the heart beating. They're not linked with personality traits, but four of them are the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen system. Each one of them is linked with a constellation of personality traits. So I decided what I would do 
is create a questionnaire to see to what degree you express the personality traits linked with these four basic brain systems, and then watch on the dating sites, match.com, and also chemistry.com, a subsidiary of match, to see who's naturally drawn to whom. And as it turns out, people are very high on the dopamine system. They tend to be novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, mentally flexible people tend to be drawn to people like themselves. They want somebody who's going to get off the couch and go off to Lisbon and see the sights. Maybe tomorrow. How about that? And they want the person to say, you bet. People are very, and I call those people explorers. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are, I call builders, very expressive of the uh, serotonin system. They tend to be conventional, traditional, follow the rules, respect authority. They like plans and schedules and routines. They like concrete uh, uh, situations rather than theoretical ideas. Um, they tend to be uh, more social and they tend to be uh, more traditionally religious rather than just spiritual. And they are also drawn to people like themselves. Builders are drawn, drawn to builders. Uh, explorers are drawn to explorers. In those two cases, similarity attracts. In the other two cases, opposites attract. People who are very expressive of the testosterone system, who might call directors, uh, tend to be very drawn to negotiators, people very expressive of the estrogen system. So those who are high on the uh, director testosterone system tend to be analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, good at what we call rule-based systems, everything from engineering to computers to mechanics to music. Um, and they're drawn to their opposite, high estrogen, which I call negotiators. These people see the big pictures, I call it web thinking. Um, they are contextual, holistic, uh, broad thinkers. They're imaginative. Um, they're very good at reading people, good at reading posture, gesture, tone of voice, um, good social skills. They tend to be empathetic and trusting and nurturing and quite diplomatic, uh, diplomatic social skills. So. Uh, and vice versa, women, people who are very high estrogen go for the high testosterone. A good example, I think, that you would know in Portugal is um, Hillary and Bill Clinton. I think Hillary is the high testosterone. You know, she was thinking of being a Marine. She was the first female senator in New York. Um, you know, somebody once asked her why why she was uh, went for Bill, and she said, uh, he wasn't afraid of me. Well, that's not something I would have thought of. Um, and Bill Clinton, whole world knows he can't stop talking. He's got very good people skills and verbal skills. Uh, uh, he's a synthetic, broad kind of thinker. Uh, he's the one that cried at the daughter's wedding, not not the wife, not Hillary. And so you you know what I do, and I probably should have studied a little on Portugal and who you've got there in your in your in your political system, but. Uh, uh, um, there's patterns to culture, there's patterns to nature, and there's patterns to personality. And indeed, uh, um, we are naturally drawn to some people rather than others, just because of our body chemistry. Now, you know, your culture can change it. Let's say you're a person who's very high on the dopamine system, you like to do a million things, and, and you had a father who was a raging alcoholic, and a mother was constantly going out and you know and you need stability in your life so you're not going to go for another explorer but like yourself you're going to go for the builder instead so culture can change who we choose 
but these seem to be natural patterns that evolved millions of years ago. It's interesting because I've already interviewed several personality psychologists on the show and it's, uh, it seems that the most prevalent uh, personality inventory nowadays is the big five. Do, we, do you know if these four personality types would map onto the big five in any yeah. way? I did a I did an academic paper on that and it's just very well publicized and it's on my website helenfisher.com etc and I did compare uh, ours with the big 5 and I found exactly what I had expected people who are the big 5 is thinking in the word ocean open to new experience conscientious <laughs> uh, extroversion agreeable and neurotic so yeah. I anticipated that um, uh, those people who scored high on the Big Five Ocean and New Experience would also score very high on my dopamine scale, the Explorer, and that's exactly what I found. Uh, people who are very high on the conscientious scale in the Big Five uh, also scored very high on my um, serotonin scale, which is exactly as you would expect. Um, I don't, um, I didn't, I don't agree with, uh, how they're measuring extroversion and introversion. I'd like to go into that with you. Uh, but in my, um, scale, I didn't measure it. And the reason I didn't measure extroversion and introversion in my, in my first study, which actually, I mean, I have 14 million people who took that questionnaire is because in dating, there's no evidence that extroverts actually go for extroverts or introverts actually go for introverts and so because i had to i was working with a dating site i had to constantly reduce the number of questions reduce the number of questions so i didn't study that um uh the big five does uh, show extroversion is linked i think with um uh being uh uh being outgoing mm -hmm. uh, uh but i want to talk about that because i don't think they understand what they're doing but anyway the bottom line is in terms of agreeableness on the big five had a negative correlation with our testosterone system which is exactly what you would expect because uh testosterone system is linked with being uh tough-minded and agreeableness is being tender-hearted so that negative so three out of the five worked exactly as i expected to i didn't study extroversion and introversion so there was no way to really measure whether that goes with my questionnaire and I didn't measure uh, neuroticism. So those two did have some results and anybody can read those studies. Uh, but let me, let me, if you don't mind, I could like to talk about why I think they're wrong about extroversion and introversion. Right. When I looked in brain studies, which they do not do, mm -hmm. and when they created that questionnaire, every other questionnaire except for mine is built from linguistic studies to make a questionnaire. And then they can't go back to linguistic studies to prove it. Now, the big five has gone out to put people in brain scanners uh, uh, and to show which brain regions are active. It's a very good scale. But um, bottom line is I think they're missing some things. And I think they're all, not only the big five, but all of them are missing something on extroversion and introversion. And here's why. First of all, when you look in the brain, uh, the, physiolog the, the medical data and the neuroscience data, you don't find that extroversion is linked with, well, actually you find it linked with three systems, the estrogen, the dopamine, and the serotonin system. Um, and I think what's going on there is 
you know, dopamine, they're extroverts. I mean, they, they want to be the life of the party, but they might not want to go to the same party all the time. They might want to go to the next thing and prove themselves there. One form of extroversion. Um, the high serotonin type, uh, the builder, they'll go out with the same group of people every Friday night, go to the same place for the summer vacation, etc. It's a different form of sociality. And the high estrogen, they want to get to know you. They want to get to know everything about you. It's a different form of what people might say is extroversion. So I didn't see any powerful link in, between extroversion and introversion with any particular brain system. That's number one. But that's not the important part. The important part is I think they're confusing two things. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, Isabel Myers of My, uh, Myers-Briggs, they do define as, uh, this properly. They say it's where you get your energy. The degree uh, uh, introversions get their uh, introverts get their energy from being alone. Extroverts get their energy from being around people. I think that's correct. And then when you read the description of these people in the Big Five and also in the, all the rest of them, they say, "Oh, this person can, you know, oh, oh, the extroverts can be the life of the party, and introverts are the wallflower, et cetera, et cetera." That's wrong. I think it's wrong in the following way. I do think it's where you get your energy, extroversion versus introversion, but I think there's a second scale, which is the degree to which you are outgoing versus reserved. Now, I am an outgoing introvert. I get my energy when I'm alone. I'm perfectly good in, uh, in hotel rooms for hours. I'm perfectly fine in, in airports and airplanes, et cetera. I get my energy from being alone. But when I'm out with people, I'm outgoing. I walk into a room. I don't know any people. I, I can, I can uh, uh, jump in just about anywhere. It's a little hard sometimes, but the bottom line is, I can. Um, anybody would. Most people would call me an extrovert because they see me in public as an outgoing, you know, jolly kind of soul. But I'm not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. I get my energy when I'm alone. Now, my brain scanning partner is the reverse. Um, she is a, a um, reserved extrovert. Mm -hmm. she, she lives in New York, actually in a house, a little outside of Manhattan. People are coming by the hour into her house, by the hour. She's got dogs, she's got plants, she's got people, she's got everything. She's got to have people around, but she's reserved. She's mm -hmm. careful with what she says. She stays in the kitchen and cooks the meal, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think that uh, the questions in the big five are actually measuring introversion versus extroversion. I think they're measuring the degree to which you're outgoing versus reserved. I'd have to go back and see what it is, but I don't think that any of them have it right. And I'm not surprised uh, that our findings, you got to read the academic paper actually. I mean, it's, it's very well, I spent me, took me almost 10 years to get that thing done, but uh, I did get it done finally. And, uh, and, uh, uh, I, I do go, I don't know if I go into extroversion and introversion, but I certainly discuss the fact that, uh, um, the, the, that we found those correlations in outgoing, uh, in being, what is it? Um, open to new experiences and dopamine, my scale, uh, conscientiousness in their scale and, and, you know, traditional conventional serotonin in our scale, et cetera, et cetera. So where the, where the correlations could have been expected, they occurred. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Okay, so let's now talk a little bit about the that finding that you had and that I think you describe in books like The Anatomy of Love and things like that, uh, where you refer to the fact that uh, as you analyzed um, the number of years that people tend to stay together after marriage in the US and also the average number of years that people stay together in romantic relationships in traditional societies, I guess, I guess we could call them that, uh, you're, you arrive at a three to four year uh, relationship. So what, do they, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean that uh, romantic love biologically uh, goes for uh, three to four years or, or lasts for three to four years on average? Uh, and what would be the rationale there? Well, so what I did is I, I'd always heard about the seven-year itch, uh, the fact that people tend to break up during and around the seventh year of marriage. And I just wanted to see what this was all about. So I looked in the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations to see, and about every 10 years, they, they collect data on how old you are when you marry, uh, how many children you have, um, um, and how long the marriage lasts. And as it turns out, around the world, if you're going to divorce, this is hundreds of millions of people now, around the world, if you're going to divorce, you tend to divorce during or around the third to fourth year of marriage. You also divorce when you're young, around age 24 to 26, right in the height of your reproductive years, and often with mostly with one dependent child, not two to reproduce the two of you, but one dependent child. I thought and I thought and I thought about it. And then I read some data in hunting and gathering societies that the natural period of birth spacing for the human animal is about four years. We had our children for millions of years, about four years apart. And it began to occur to me, maybe we evolved a mechanism to stay together at least long enough to raise a single child through infancy. Now, in a hunting gathering society, once a child is out of infancy, it can be cared for by a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old and aunts and uncles and cousins, etc. So <clears throat> perhaps for millions of years, we evolved sort of a restlessness in long relationships to stay together at least long enough to raise a single child through infancy and then um, <clears throat> break up, form a new pair bond with somebody else, and have babies with that second or th and third individual, thereby creating more genetic variety in their young. And it probably was adaptive for millions of years to have babies with somewhat different people so that you would have more variety in your babies. And in very bad economic times, one of those children would live because they've got the traits that are adaptive for that environment. So we seem to have a predisposition, a propensity uh, for restlessness in long relationships. Now, people are gonna vary. I would say that the build of the high serotonin type, very traditional, conventional, following the rules are gonna be less likely uh, to divorce and have several partners. Perhaps the high dopamine is gonna be more likely because they're gonna be a restless kind of creature and, and want the new. Um, so I do think that people are going to vary. I mean, in America, 50% of people do not divorce. And we're always talking about how many do divorce, but a lot of people don't divorce also. Uh, so it's, uh, 
Um, so I think this four-year itch has become known is probably an adaptive mechanism evolved millions of years ago and that we still cart around in our heads some predisposition for restlessness in a long relationship. But you also asked another question. <clears throat> What's happening in the brain? And um, it would be great to know what's happening. You know, I mean, some people remain in love for only a few months. Some people remain in love for their whole life. I mean, we've proven that in these long-term lovers. Some people remain in love, uh, you know, uh, two years. But it's entirely possible that you can remain in love for two years and then move into that attachment stage and then begin to rest, get restless after four years. Or you know, be in love for four years. And then as soon as it moves into attachment, you're bored, you got to move on. So I don't know, I would say it'd be very different in different people. Some people are going to remain in love that early stage, intense romantic love uh, longer than others and under different circumstances. But <clears throat> excuse me, this four year itch, uh, regardless of whether you're feeling sex drive, romantic love, attachment, declining, it seems to be a human predisposition to become restless in long relationships, uh, leave the pair bond, form a new pair with somebody else and have more babies with that second and third person. Leaving the human animal with what I call serial monogamy, a series of partnerships during the course of their lives. And uh, <clears throat> in every culture in the world where people are permitted to divorce, people do divorce and they it's not a pleasant experience divorcing you almost have to be driven for to get out of a certain situation and into another and we seem almost biologically equipped to do that so i actually think that's important for maintaining a long-term partnership and you know we have this still have this agrarian concept of till death do us part you got to make sure that you keep those three brain systems alive if you want a long-term partnership. You you got to keep the sex alive. That's important uh, to most people. You got to keep the romantic love alive and do novel things together. That'll keep up the uh, uh, pump up the do uh, the um, dopamine. And you got to stay in touch. Hug, kiss, hold, walk arm in arm in the street. Uh, learn to lie in each other's arms, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to keep the oxytocin system um, flowing. So there's ways to use brain, the understanding of neuroscience, to sustain long-term partnerships and get over the bumps of the four-year itch, the eight-year itch, the fourteen-year itch, <laughs> etc. Okay, so is it really possible for us to talk about uh, humans as having a preferred mating system, like, for example, monogamy or polyamory or uh, polygyny, polyandry? Because, I mean, you referred there in your answer to serial monogamy. But uh, some time ago, I've read that in, in more than 80% uh, of human societies in history that they were polygynous. But on the other hand, uh, people also refer to the fact that even in polygynous societies, it's only a minority of men that really have polygynous marriages, like, like the higher status men. Uh, and the others only have one wife or even zero wives. So, uh, I mean, can we talk really about a preferred mating system in humans or, 
Yeah, boy, Ricardo, you really do your homework. It's a beautiful thing. I want to thank you. Um, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. 86% of world cultures permit a man to have more than one wife. And men strive to do it, and the culture totally accepts it. What a lot of people, anthropologists included, don't tell you is that in those societies, uh, co-wives get jealous. Uh, uh, sometimes they'll try to poison each other's children. Uh, uh, there's a lot of problems. We're really not built to share a partner. Now, uh, women who are poor would uh, prefer to marry, be the second wife of a rich man than uh, the only wife of a poor man. So there's all kinds of women who will put up with polygyny. Uh, 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 in order to get the economic perks, and not only for them, but but also their children, and uh, and in polyandry, um, a woman having several husbands is very very rare. Point oh five percent of America of, of world cultures actually express it, that. It's only like in societies in Tibet or something like that. There's two places in in Tibet uh, is one, and on the northwest coast of southern Alaska, mm -hmm. in the United States uh, traditionally was another for very different reasons. Um, in Tibet, uh, if a man had four sons and he had a tiny little farm, he really couldn't divide that farm into four little subplots because after a while nobody would have any land and so he would have a wife get a wife for all four men well it sounds good and but the bottom line is let's say she's a 15 year old girl and she's married to a an 11 year old boy a 21 year old boy a 26 year old boy and a 35 year old boy and you know uh, what'll happen is she may have sex with all of them uh, but the, the the other boy, a lot of the boys won't be that interested and they'll have a girlfriend in town so and have extra lovers, etc. So, um, it, you know, it's a system, it's an economic system among the poor to hold land, land together. That's what's going on in Tibet, to my knowledge. Uh, in southern Alaska, traditionally, a woman were very powerful. Women were very powerful. The sea was filled with salmon. The woods were filled with deer. And the men did an awful lot of hunting, but women were the traders. Men did the work of gathering the goods, but women were the traders. And so they uh, accrued a huge uh, amount of the equivalent of money. And once again, a man uh, would prefer to be the second husband of a very rich woman than the only husband of a poor one and when they, if they're poor themselves. So it, different ecological circumstances will um, you know, push the human creature to uh, do alternate strategies from serial monogamy. But they don't work as well. Um, and if I, was, I was living, I was not living, I was, I was traveling in the highlands of New Guinea and you may have heard me tell this story, but uh, I, I was traveling and I met a man who had three wives and I asked him, how many wives would you like to have? And there was this long pause and I thought, it's going to say five, is he going to say 10, is he going to say 25? And he looked at me and said, none. And the reason is because it can be a toothache to have several wives. And then the next man, which I've not said on the air before, leaned in and he said, you know, Helen, you can never have two wives. You have to have one or more. Because if you have two wives, every time you're out of town with the other wife, the first wife knows where you are and is jealous. So the brain is built for pair bonding, a series of pair bonds, and probably also for adultery on the side. 
Um, but um, it wasn't terribly well built for, for pair bonding, I mean, for polygyny. Now, gorillas, a male and a female, young male and female gorilla will travel together. But if that male doesn't pick up a second female, the first female will leave. They are built in the brain for polygyny, for harem building. And females and males will not tolerate just a pair bond, whereas humans have a hard time tolerating these other reproductive strategies. Now, you did mention uh, uh, polyamory. It's really on the move right at the moment. It's talked about a lot. I did one study of it among 5,000 American singles, and 68% of American singles approve of it, don't have any problem with it, but only 6% have ever done it. Hmm. And um, it's a very interesting uh, polyamory. It's not really any different from being married to one person and being adulterous on the side. The real difference is that they're transparent. Right. They tell their partner they've made a plan. They're completely honest and open above level on it. They're not lying to anybody. And in that way, I think that's great. It's just hard to do. And, you know, they will say, oh, yes, you know, we, we do it. Uh, we've agreed on it. But they don't always tell you is that they spend days <laughs> talking about their feelings. Days days and nights talking about their feelings. And uh, they wouldn't be doing that if this was absolutely natural. So I indeed, uh, you know, cognitively they, they think, okay, well, I'd like to have a, sustain my deep attachment with my beloved girlfriend of a long time or wife of a long time. But I also want the, the exhilaration of romance and the excitement of sex with somebody else. So they agree cognitively. They agree, this is a good idea, let's do this. But then they've got to deal with their emotions. And some of them can do it. I'm not one of them. Uh, with my boyfriend, I, I said to him recently, I said, you know, if you're gonna sleep with other people, don't tell me. Because <laughs> if you tell me, there'll be a problem. I, I mean, even though I, you know, we're both older and he was in a very, very long, horrible marriage. And he really hasn't had the experiences that maybe I'd even like him to have, you know, it's not fair to sort of coop somebody up and, and I adore the guy, I, you know, but uh, I just know that uh, it would really hurt my feelings to think about him having sex with somebody else. So, you know, he's always saying to me, no, no, Helen, you're just great and all that kind of stuff. But uh, bottom line is polyamory is not for everybody. It's, you got to be a bit tough minded and you got to be able to control jealousy. And you've got to really believe in this. And that's fine. I've got nothing against it. People do what they do. But um, we're not well built for it. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we've evolved this emotion, this very strong emotion of jealousy. And it works a little bit different between men and women. I've already had Dr. David Buss on the show and we talked about that. But uh, I mean... Actually, some of that material has been proven otherwise that uh, women just get just as uh, jealous of men sleeping around. It's not just because they're losing resources and men get, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that day, I mean, I'm crazy about David Buss. He's a great guy, but there's been a lot of questions about whether that actually is true. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, fair enough. Uh, anyway, I was going to say that perhaps when it comes to polyamory, I mean, you focused on, in your answer, on polygyny and how it affects the different women that are part of the same relationship with the same man. But I guess that uh, if it was the case that the same the same woman would be shared by several different men then that also would be a big problem because in men specifically we have this mechanism of paternity uncertainty operating so <laughs> i mean i guess that there wouldn't be many men willing to share the same woman with other men right yeah well they <clears throat> i mean in these parts of tibet uh they got to stay on the land and they can't wander off because they don't have anything if they wander off. So they're going to stick around, but yes, they will have girlfriends in town and, and, you know, probably even have children with them. I don't know. Uh, you know, I haven't, I've only read somewhat what about it. I talk a little bit in my books, but, uh, um, the human animal just does not like to share. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, so just one last question, and this is very interesting. You also talk about it in your work. You refer to the future of human relationships being slow love. What is it about? This is my newest idea. I'm really locked into it. And I'd like to hear a little about what's going on in Portugal. And tell me whether it's the same there as it is in here. But uh, Bottom line is I'm chief science advisor to Match.com, the dating site. We collect data on singles every single year in an annual study called Singles in America. We do not poll the match members. We poll the American public. It's a good sample of Americans based on the U.S. Census. So it's a representative sample based on the U.S. Census. So every year I ask some questions that are trend questions, and every year I ask some new questions. Among the trend questions are, have you ever uh, had a one-night stand? Over 50% of Americans have. Not necessarily last year, but during the course of their lives. Over 50% of Americans have had a friends with benefits. You've got that term in Portugal? Uh, yeah? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, and 50% um, and uh, have lived with somebody long-term before they get married. So Americans seem to think this is reckless craziness. What are we doing? And I began, to realize, I began to realize after reading several academic articles that it's not craziness, it's caution. Today, singles want to get to know every single thing about a potential partner before they marry. So what I began to realize is what we're seeing is an extension of what I call the pre-commitment stage uh, of partnerships. They'll get into bed with somebody very fast. Uh, they want to you learn a lot between the sheets, not just uh, whether he's any good in bed, but whether he's kind, whether he's patient, whether he's got a sense of humor, whether he can laugh, whether he can listen, uh, etc. So um, what we're doing is we're hopping into bed rather rapidly. I call it fast sex, slow love, and slowly getting to know somebody uh, before they marry. In fact, in America, it seems to come in four stages. The first thing you do is you have a friendship, just friends. Could happen a long time. Then you get friends with benefits. You, move, you have sex together. Then you slowly get out and tell friends and family. And you slowly move in together. And then you finally marry. Where marriage used to be the beginning of a relationship, now it's the finale. And I began to think, I already knew that the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain married. And what we're seeing is a long period of 
pre-commitment before we wed and later and later marriage. And um, I have data in three sources that around the world, the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain married. So I did a study of 1,100 married people in America, and I asked them a lot of questions. But one of the questions was, would you remarry the person you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. So um, um, I think because of this slow love, fast sex, slow love, uh, the young and even middle-aged people, they're learning more about themselves. They're learning more about sex. They're learning more about how to keep a relationship and they're learning more about how to get out of something that doesn't work before they marry and have children. And we may be moving slowly towards more marital st stability just because of slow love. Are you seeing that in, in Portugal? Are you seeing people marrying later? Well, I'm not sure about the data here, but uh, earlier you asked me if we have the same sort of, of, of phrase or expression here for friends with benefits. Here we call them um, um, amizade colorida, that in English would be something like a colored relation, a, a colored a friendship that is a friendship with some some more colors so people i think i think that people here think about a simple friendship between a man and the and a woman uh, that doesn't have sex as uh, a friendship that is sort of in black and white and when it has sex included then it is colored in some way so that, that's that, interesting uh -huh. yeah. and you don't know if they're married later i do know that around the world people are marrying later i just read that in the economy oh, they, they, they are marrying later here they are marrying but, later. but I, i'm i'm not sure if they really uh, stick with a colored friendship or an, um or a romantic relationship outside marriage for longer and longer periods of time or not. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but they're marrying later. Mm -hmm. So they've got more time to understand who they are, uh, to have, you know, various friendships and colored relationships, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, or friends with benefits. And um, I do think that's going to lead to more stable partnerships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense, at least to me, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Dr. Fisher, we've already done one hour and 15 minutes or something like that. There were other topics that we could explore here from your work. But uh, just before we go, would you like to tell people uh, what would be some of the best online resources if they want to get in touch with your work? Well, I've got two websites, um, HelenFisher.com, and no dots, no dashes, no C in Fisher, HelenFisher.com, little British name. And I also have a website called TheAnatomyOfLove.com. Mm -hmm. And I think you could find a lot of my material on either of those two sites. And I've written six books on it, uh, and they sell in Portugal, in Portuguese, so um, maybe that would be a good thing too. And you can take my personality questionnaire on my website, The Anatomy of Love, or in in two of my books. My most recent one, it's called Anatomy of Love. It's in there. And it's also in the book, Why Him, Why Her. 
Okay, so I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Fisher, again, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. And perhaps someday in the future, we could do another conversation. So Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics from a variety of fields. So just to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you don't like Patreon, you can also do it via PayPal and Subscribestar. Yeah, all of the links will be in the description box otherwise and if you like what I'm doing please share it leave a like and hit the subscription button I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gilina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Jane Eninen, and my first producer, Isar Weber. Thank you for all.